0: We are going to energise the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it.
1: Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. I'm joined by my co-host, Conrad. Hello. And in this episode, uh, we're delighted to be joined by Julian Burnside QC, uh, who is a leading Australian human rights activist and is also... Uh, the uh, Greens uh, candidate uh, for the federal senate seat of Victoria. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is what uh, first got you involved in um, the Greens and what first made you decide to stand as a uh, senatorial candidate for Victoria?
0: Okay, if, if, if I could be allowed a longish answer. Yeah. I grew up in a country where the Liberal Party um, was in government from the year of my birth to the year I graduated from university. Um, I was totally not interested in politics or politicians. I despised most of them. Um, but uh, at the end of 2018, I think it was, the IPCC produced a report which said in substance that the world has to take urgent steps in relation to climate change by 2030 or it will be too late. And the idea that it would be too late really hit home and I thought well um, the only party in Australia with a sensible approach to climate change is the Greens. I had to look at the rest of their policies. They all ultimately resolved to a concern about human rights and I was sold because human rights and justice are a major part of my thinking. So um, you
2: obviously um, ran against um, the current treasurer of Australia. What was it like running against someone who's sort of a high-profile figure? Did it make the race sort of interesting, get more media attention?
0: Uh, well, I don't know what sort of media attention I would have expected in a different seat, but... Um, One thing I should say, I didn't choose to run against him personally. I ran against him in his seat because I've lived in this seat all my life. Um, So I thought, well, I'm not going to move, so I might as well stand in this seat. And to be candid, I always thought Josh Frydenberg was a fairly decent guy. But very quickly he was being so dishonest, I thought he's not a decent guy after all, he's a prick. Um, I mean, one thing, for instance he and a liberal candidate in the seat next door to this um, put forward the view that I was in favour of female genital mutilation. That was by reference to a speech I'd given to the Medico-Legal Society of Victoria 25 years ago in which I said the exact opposite, that I was appalled by female genital mutilation and totally opposed to it. And the real question, the philosophical question I was debating was whether the fact that you disapprove of something means that you should make it unlawful. And they're very different things. Um, So I said, well, you don't make FGM unlawful, no no matter that I disapprove of it profoundly. Um, That point seems to have missed him completely. And I thought it was pretty unscrupulous for him uh, to suggest that I was in favour of FGM when, in fact, I'm opposed to it and said so in plain terms in the paper, which obviously he didn't read. Uh, so, um, and that's one of the reasons that I've always disliked politicians, because honesty seems to be uh, alien to what they do. And um, uh, to be candid, if I get into Parliament, I will be honest at all times, and I'll call out other people's dishonesty if I see it.
1: Um, one of the things uh, that I found particularly interesting um, with um, the things that you have focused on is that, um, and you mentioned this in um, uh, a uh, video that you did uh, for the Greens uh, at the the last, the federal elections, is that you said that you were concerned about how individuals are treated. Do you think that sometimes uh, in the political system, individuals
0: are overlooked? I do, I do. And when you think about it, human rights is ultimately a question of how individual people are treated. Um, I think it's really important. And um, uh, the best I can say of myself is that I don't think my human rights have ever been significantly at risk, but I'm very concerned about other people whose human rights are at risk. So individual people always count.
2: Now, um, obviously, the biggest news story at the moment, the one we can't get away from, is the coronavirus outbreak. Um, the Australian government has been seen by a lot of people to have handled it pretty well. What's your thoughts on how they've handled it? Do you think there's, they've done it well, or do you think there's areas that could improve?
0: I think they've handled it very well, actually. Um, much as I dislike our present Liberal government, I think they've done a very good job of it. Um, I'm concerned about the fact that the method of um, defeating the coronavirus in Australia has involved trashing some basic liberties, but um, when you are fighting a really dangerous opponent, then some liberties have to be compromised. The real test for this government will be what they do when the pandemic is ended. And if they continue to keep the uh, measures that so affect individual liberties, then I'll be deeply concerned about that and I'll be standing up and opposing it. Um, Now,
1: uh, one of the other major news stories in uh, the last few years in Australia has, of course, uh, been the refugees on uh, Manus and Nauru who have been detained there. Uh, I wondered if you are elected to the Senate, what will you be doing in regards uh, to the case of uh, Manus and Nauru? What do you think should be done uh, with the people who are who are still on
0: Manus and Nauru? Well, in my opinion, they should be brought to Australia and allowed to live in the community and uh, at an appropriate time be allowed to apply for citizenship. The, um, there's a great... I mean, I got involved in the refugee issue because of the Tampa case, which was um, the, the Tampa was a Norwegian cargo ship, which was asked by the Australian government to go to the rescue of some people in a refugee boat, um, which the Australian government was aware of. That refugee boat had run into physical difficulties. And it had basically fallen apart and all the refugees were in the water. The, Tampa, the captain of the Tampa later said he'd thought there were, may, were maybe 50 people on the boat, and he was astounded when 438 people walked up the rope ladder onto the deck of the Tampa. Now, the people on the deck of the Tampa were in a pretty difficult position, and I was asked to act for the pro bono by a solicitor who had recently briefed me in a case concerning a fugitive Mexican banker. Um, And I said yes, not because of any interest in refugees or concern about refugees because I knew nothing about refugees back then, but ever since childhood I've suffered from the heat very much. And I thought, these poor buggers, they're sitting on the steel deck of a ship in the tropical sun. That must be dreadful. Um, We've got to do something to help them. So that's how I got into it. Now, by getting into that case, I came across a lot of people who knew a great deal about refugees, and I learned a lot about what was going on, not least of which that refugees who arrived in Australia without prior permission would be locked up until they received a visa or until they were removed from Australia. Pretty dreadful when you think about it. Um, the the Tampa case uh, ran for, I think, six days. Um, And the judgment, which was in our favour from the trial judge, was handed down in Melbourne at 2.15 in the afternoon Melbourne time on the 11th of September 2001. About eight hours later, the attack on America happened. And all of a sudden, the then Prime Minister of Australia started calling boat people illegals because um, his assumption was that all boat people were Muslim and all all Muslims were dreadful. That That was the crude logic that he worked on. Um, the, that case probably changed the direction of my life in a number of ways, not least because I became active in the public, trying to change the public's mind. Uh, it also, um, my wife, who's an artist, uh, said, this is outrageous. You know, most Australian homes have got a spare room and, Uh, we should set up spare rooms for refugees. The idea being that you'd use your spare room to give someone free accommodation. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, we have to lead by example. So from late 2001 to the present, we've had refugees living in our house with us. Um, That's been very, very useful because what that taught me is that um, just like other people, some refugees are fantastic, Most are just ordinary and some are not great. But it's just like real people, just like the rest of us, you know, and that's a very useful thing to learn. So um, the Tampa also, the, the Tampa litigation also resulted in the Australian government setting up Manus and Nauru as places of offshore detention. There is a bloke in detention in... Melbourne at the moment, who, was, who arrived just after July, 2013. As a result, he was sent more or less automatically to Manus, being an unaccompanied male. Um, he, ha- he was recognized by the Papua New Guineans as a refugee, and he started suffering medical problems, which the PNG system were, was incapable of remedying. As a result, He was brought to Australia for medical treatment under what was called the Medivac legislation, which has subsequently been um, repealed. Anyway, he was brought here about eight or ten months ago uh, for specific medical needs. He has not yet received the medical treatment that he was brought here for. He's held in detention, even though he was brought here by Australia and is recognised as a refugee. And he's been told privately that it will be 2022 before he gets the medical treatment that he was sent here for. So, you know, I think the people we've sent to places like Manus and Nauru really should be treated decently like the human beings that they are. What we, We've got people in detention, refugees in detention, who've been in detention for nine years. Now that's pretty much the time you'd get in jail if you're convicted of murder. Now, these people haven't committed any offence at all, uh, and yet they are locked up and treated like criminals. And at the moment, there's a very serious problem with um, coronavirus because uh, some of them are kept in what's called community detention, which means that they're in uh, the Mantra Hotel in Preston, which is not very far from the main detention centre, and... Uh, They are held like four or five people in one room, absolutely rock-solid conditions, the sort of conditions that are very likely to lead to them getting coronavirus, and yet there they are. They've committed no offence. They're held in conditions which will probably produce coronavirus.
2: So another um, sort of big issue that you are um, concerned about, um, obviously as a Green Party member, is climate change. And Australia has suffered with bushfires this year, um, becoming a more and more regular occurrence. Now, um, what kind of green policies would you like to see Australia put into place? And how do these differ to what the government's doing
0: at the moment? I would like to see the science being taken seriously. Um, At the moment, the government... Nods to the science and does nothing about it. Uh, clearly, fossil fuel as a source of energy is a major problem, and most of our fossil fuel uh, um, electricity plants are operating way beneath their capacity and are causing great harm. We need to. We need to take. Corona, we, sorry, we need to take climate change seriously. And the thing that worries me about climate change is this. It is something that we've seen. It's something we've seen coming up and we've done nothing about it. Um, It will lead to a world which is essentially unlivable for human beings. So by the time the present generation of politicians are dead, by the time the next generation of politicians are dead, um, our grandchildren or great-grandchildren will be inhabiting a planet which is not capable of supporting human life. Now, I think that's outrageous. That is the worst, that is the worst uh, denial of human rights imaginable, and yet we've known about it. I don't know how much you've looked at this subject, but the mechanism of climate change is that infrared radiation is trapped in the atmosphere, especially by carbon-based molecules. Um, I wonder if either of you know when that phenomenon was first identified. It was first identified by an English scientist called Eunice Foote, who helped an Irish scientist called John Tyndall, in 1859. We've known about it for over a century and we've done nothing.
1: Do you think that um, part of the reason that there are deniers of uh, climate change is that the sheer enormity of the problem is sometimes too difficult for people to rationalise and to engage with?
0: That's a very interesting question. Um, It may be that, or it may be the same phenomenon that resulted in people paid by the tobacco industry for years and years denying that smoking had an adverse impact on health. Now, I don't know which it is, but it's time for people to wake up and have a look at the science. most people have got an iPhone. That means that they rely on science. Most people are willing, once the coronavirus thing's out of the way, most people are willing to hop on an aeroplane. That means that they're placing their faith in science. Now, corona, uh, sorry, climate change is as dangerous as a plane that crashes. Um, maybe people should place some reliance on the science in relation to climate change. There's another very interesting thing. There's a, a, one of the best books I think I've ever read is called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli writer. And it is a history of Homo sapiens, which our species. We've been around two or 300,000 years. And until we discovered agriculture, we tended to live in extended groups um, of 50 or 100 people moving from hiding place to hiding place, avoiding our predators and so on. Then about 12,000 years ago, we discovered agriculture, and that was the time when we began to live in towns, villages, cities, and so on. And in the book, Harari raises a very interesting question. He says, if we've spent 90% of our history as a species um, in these extended but modest-sized groups, and only 10% of our history living in towns and villages, does this mean that we are genetically disposed to be concerned about the immediate group rather than the entire group? Now, he doesn't answer the question, but it's a really, really interesting question, and climate change is the very first phenomenon which has threatened our entire species, all of us. Although there's an interesting irony in this, It occurred to me um, a while back that if climate change keeps going uh, the way it is with help of people like Scott Morrison who notoriously carried a lump of coal into the parliament to to praise it and say that it was not dangerous, um, if if climate change keeps going the way he contemplates, uh, then it is a certainty that people like... You and me will perish. you know city life will no longer be livable. There'll be some human survivors like the uh, Kalahari bushmen, like the Inuit and like the outback aborigines in australia so if if Scott Morrison gets his way, the Aboriginal people of Australia might get their land back. the land that we stole from them in seventeen eighty eight
2: now um green parties are often seen as being on the left of politics um, but recently we've seen in in um, Austria the green Party form a coalition government with um, Seb Kurtz's party which is on the right and people have spoken about a similar thing maybe happening with Merkel's party in in Germany after the next federal election do you think that there is this is sort of something that could happen more and more and that green parties could sort of move have more of a right-wing alliance or do you think that the traditional view of Green parties being left-wing is the correct one?
0: Uh, interesting question and I think the only truthful answer is I'm not sure. I think that Greens parties are typically oriented to the left, um, which may make it difficult to form an alliance with a party of the right. Um But if a Greens party can form an alliance with parties of the right without sacrificing their underlying principles, well, fine, why not? So uh, in principle, I don't oppose it. In practice, I suspect it's very difficult. Um,
1: Now, of course, one of the uh, major uh, left-wing parties in Australia is, of course, the um, Labour Party. And um, in the last federal uh, elections in which you uh, took part, uh, the Labour Party seemed like they may uh, be able to get a majority, uh, but fell short. Um, why do you think uh, Bill Shorten didn't live up to the expectations that many people had for him?
0: Um, the Liberal Party, which succeeded, ran a fairly dishonest campaign, and that's probably part of it. Um, to be candid, I don't mind Bill Shorten as a guy, but I didn't think he was much of a leader. Um, I don't know. I think you'd probably sp- have to speak to a much more sophisticated political analyst than me to get an answer to that.
2: Now, um, one issue that's been massive in the UK over recent years is Brexit, Britain leaving the European Union. Um, One one element of this is new free trade deals around the world and possibly a free trade deal with Australia. Um, What are your views on Britain and Australia doing a trade deal? Uh,
0: Well, if it's possible, bring it on. Um, I don't have any objection to it on principle. I don't know how practical it is. Um, And I'm not close enough to the Brexit process to have a particular view about Brexit, but I would have thought... Any countries that can reach an agreement on trade should do so. The only problem that I have with international trade is that it's a very curious thing that um, goods and money are allowed to move around the globe more or less without hindrance. Why can't people also move around the globe more or less without hindrance?
1: Um, Now, we've mentioned uh, Brexit and, of course, uh, Britain's relationship with Australia. Um, but another uh, relationship that, is, uh, that did develop over the, the last couple of years was, of course, um, Australia's uh, relationship with uh, the United States and the relationship between um, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Australia and uh, the President of the United States. How do you feel about that relationship between uh, the Australian government and um, the American President?
0: Uh probably the best way to answer that is to say that i regard donald trump as the worst leader of a major country that i've ever experienced and i can't stand scott morrison so <laughs> what do you want i mean i think it's it's really going to be a problem because uh in terms of trade america is relatively unimportant to us i mean it's significant but not a major element but our biggest trading partner is china and Whilst Australia and America have had a fairly strong relationship in matters of defence for quite a long time, um, um, America and China are not getting along well and that will create stresses for Australia. Um, and I have to say I think if push comes to shove, I'd be inclined to say let's, let's back China, um, even though that may weaken our relationship with America.
1: Um, Now, I'd like to um, move to some of the cases uh, that you involved in as an advocate. And one of the ones that I think was um, particularly interesting and was very significant uh, was the uh, Bruce Trevorrow case uh, involving um, the uh, lost generations of uh, Aborigine uh, people. Um, For those who aren't familiar uh, with the case, can you just um, explain what it was about and, and your involvement with it?
0: Yeah. Bruce Trevorrow was born in November 1956 at One Mile Camp, Meningi. Meningi is a very small town on the edge of the Coorong, which is a a large body of water where the Murray River enters the ocean. Um, The reason that Bruce was born in One Mile Camp, One Mile Camp was just a collection of humpies and so on a mile outside Meningi. And the reason for it was that Back then, in November 1956, it was unlawful for an Aboriginal person to be less than one mile from a place of white settlement unless they had a permit. Pretty shocking idea when you think of it. When you consider that we were on their land, which we took from, sorry, you took from them, Um, our ancestors um, uh, took the land from them. So anyway, when Bruce was 13 months old on Christmas Day of 1957, he got very sick. And he was driven up to Adelaide to the Children's Hospital by some people in Meningi who had a car. He was put in hospital, was diagnosed as having gastroenteritis and there was a wave of gastro going through South Australia at the time. Um, He was treated appropriately and a week later he was better. And a week after that he was given away to a white family who lived in suburban Adelaide. Um, it Didn't work out so well um the the um uh the mother the the white so-called foster mother although he was never actually fostered to them the white foster mother had some personal difficulties and bruce had difficulties by the time he was 9 he was giving real trouble he was sent to the new the then newly established Child Gardens Clinic, um, and he was treated for the difficulties he was having. When he turned 10, the law had changed so that he was allowed to meet his natural family. Up until then, the government had consistently prevented his natural mother from finding out where he was, so he'd never met his natural mother or his siblings. and He never actually met his father who died before the law changed. Um, it was arranged that Bruce would spend I think the following Easter down at um, um, a, a city about, I don't know, some many miles from Adelaide, like maybe 100 miles from Adelaide, Port Augusta. No, not Port Augusta, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, he, was, he was allowed to go to his natural family for the Easter holiday He, a lady from the Aborigines Department came round to his house in suburban Adelaide. Uh, They put him on the bus, sent him off to wherever it was, and the white mother said, he's too much trouble, I won't have him back. So the department posted his clothes and his toys after him. That's how he was reunited with the natural family that he'd never known. Now, things didn't work out so very easily there, and he left them and tried to walk back to Adelaide, hundreds of miles. Um, He was picked up by the police and spent the rest of his childhood in state care. Now, that that was Bruce. Anyway, Bruce happened to be in Adelaide at one point and walked past the Aboriginal Legal Service and he wandered in and they agreed to take up his case and apply to the court for damages for, that he'd suffered, um, and uh, after a trial that ran for many weeks, uh, we got judgment. The judge found it as a fact. That he'd been taken unlawfully, unlawfully, from his natural family, um, that he'd suffered damage as a result, and he was awarded almost a million dollars in damages. Um, it was a big win, and it is, even to this day, it is the only Stolen Generation case to have succeeded. Um, The irony of it all is that um, Bruce had two brothers, Tom and George Trevorrow, and Tom and George had become leaders of the Naringeri community, which is the Aboriginal group in that area. Um, We got the judgment in August of 2007, and later that year, Kevin Rudd became a Labor Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, He promised in advance that the first order of business for the new government would be an apology to the stolen generations. Um, But Kevin Rudd, being as he is, wanted to have the public gallery filled with Aboriginal people to listen to the apology. Um, Tom and George Trevorrow were invited. Bruce was not. (laughs) The only stolen, only person found by court to have been unlawfully taken from his parents. So we sent the department a little reminder and he eventually was invited and he got there, um, and was very, very proud of having got there. but he died in June the following year, June of 2008, just short of his 52nd birthday. Um, so it was a story with some interesting facets. Do you
1: think that um, the Australian people and the Australians' um, government's relationship to the Aborigine people? Is strained because there hasn't been um, a, a, a full or, or a complete recognition of what was done by the government uh, to the aborigine
0: people. Um, yeah, I think I think it has. Um, it's interesting in Melbourne where I live. Um, you can hardly go to any public event without the person in charge of the event saying that they acknowledge the, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and you know, the, the whatever group of the whatever nation, um, and acknowledge their elders past and present. Um, I was in Bunbury on the west coast of Western Australia a few years ago and the lady who'd organised the event said that there's going to be the acknowledgement and then this and then that and then you'll speak and so on. And I said, look, if you're going to acknowledge the traditional owners, what about acknowledging that our ancestors took the land from them and caused them immense harm? And then we redoubled the harm by taking their children from them. And Aboriginal people in Australia are now a very sad group regarded by most Australians as no-hopers. And I think it's time that we looked around and considered the possibility that our actions were part of the cause. Um, now, what surprised me about it was I think Bunbury was the first time I'd suggested it be done that way, and Bunbury is a very conservative town. The people in Bunbury stood up and applauded when the person running the meeting uh, gave the acknowledgement that way. So I think there are people with good conscience here who haven't yet worked out that um, we, we owe a real debt the people, the Aboriginal people who survive. Interestingly, um, you may be aware that that several governments, recent governments, have adopted the slogan Stop the Boats in relation to refugees. I saw a wonderful cartoon a while back. It's, It's a black fella standing at Sydney Cove looking down at the First Fleet lying at anchor in 1788. He's got a can of British paints in one hand, which will make you understand my snide comments, and using the paint he has scrawled on an adjacent surface, surface, stop the boats.
1: We're coming to the end of the podcast now. It's been um, great to speak to you, uh, Julian, and I've got one uh, final question for you. Of course, uh, you're running uh, in Victoria, you're running as a a green a Greens candidate. I, I just wondered, as someone who's been a lawyer, whether you're at all uh, worried about uh, someone uh, say, for example, someone called Cleaver Green uh, standing against you. And I, I wondered what do you think of um, Rake as a television program and, w- and what do you think of um, the representation of uh, of, of lawyers, of, of barristers in media?
0: I thought Rake was a terrific program. I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, I'm not sure it represents barristers all that... <laughs> Accurately. Um, I mean, I know enough barristers to think there are some like Cleaver Green, um, but I, it's a great show. It's a great show. And uh, it shows that some lawyers can be entertaining. <laughs> I mean, the rest of us are pretty dull because, you know, you you spend your life doing dull stuff. I've been very lucky in my career because I've done some pretty interesting cases and Trevorrow is just one of them. But... Uh, yeah, I think Rake is a programme really worth watching.
1: Uh, well, uh, I would highly recommend that uh, to any of our, our listeners to, to, to check it out. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. Uh,
1: if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, uh, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, uh, YouTube and Podbean. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do At The Debated Podcast. Uh, like us on Facebook debated podcast and if you'd like to email us about this episode or any others that you've listened to you can do at the podcast at gmail.com thank you for listening i hope you listen to the next one